It is odd, isn't it? It's weird. It's strange. It's bizarre. It's queer, isn't it? Resurrection. Coming back from the dead. How odd, how weird, how strange, how bizarre, and how queer. I'm afraid we Christians have just got so used to the idea of resurrection that it doesn't startle us anymore. Think about it. We believe that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And we believe that we too one day will come back from the dead. That's weird. That's strange. Because I've never seen a resurrected person with my eyes. But I believe it. I absolutely believe it, even if it sounds bizarre. Speaking of weird and bizarre, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. We'll see some odd, weird, strange, bizarre and queer stuff in the passage today. It's a strange passage for sure, but I believe every word of it, and I hope you do too. So let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to the truth of his word. Heavenly Father, there are many people here today. Some think they're good, They just don't know how bad they are. There are some Christians here who think they're good. They think they're better than other people. They're smug. They're full of self-righteousness. They need to see Jesus. There are some people here today, Father, who feel like they're not worthy of your love because they know how bad they are. They know how sinful they are, and they need to see Jesus. Father, there are some people here today who are doubting. They're skeptics. They don't believe in you. They don't believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. They need to see Jesus. Father, there are some people here who don't want to be here today. They were drugged here by their spouse or by their parents. They need to see Jesus. There's all kinds of people here today, Father, and we all need Jesus to see Jesus. So by the power of the Spirit, would you direct us to your Son who came back from the dead. In his name, amen. Since it's Easter, would you bear with me? Since it's Resurrection Sunday and we are definitely going to be talking about people coming back from the dead, would you please bear with me? Since we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus Christ came back from the dead, would you bear with me one more time as I use an episode of The Twilight Zone as a sermon introduction? I mean, if there's ever a time to justify using an episode of The Twilight Zone that centers around bringing people back from the dead and using that as your sermon introduction, isn't Resurrection Sunday the best time? Besides, 
the story that we will read in God's word today even sounds like it could be an episode of the Twilight Zone. So I think it's appropriate. Thank you in advance for indulging me. Mr. Garrity and the Graves first appeared on television in 1964 on May 8th, which happens to be my birthday. And the episode takes place in the old Wild West. Mr. Garrity arrives in this quaint little old West town and naturally saunters to the town saloon for a drink. His conversation with the bartender is as follows. The bartender says, what's your pleasure, sir? Mr. Garrity says, cold beer. Cold beer she is, that'll be a nickel. Mr. Garrity says, it's a lovely little town. What's that? Oh, I was just remarking about your town, Mr. Garrity says. It's a beautiful, peaceful little place you've got here. It's the name that really gets me. Happiness, Arizona. Yeah, that's what she's been called, Happiness, Arizona. Let's see. She's been called that about 10 months now. Oh, Mr. Garrity replies, what was she called before that? Called before that? Oh, various things. Satan's stage stop. Dead Man's Junction, Boot Hill Village, you passed it, Boot Hill Town Cemetery, 128 people buried there, every one of them shot to death, except one who died of natural causes. Well, that's life, Mr. Garrity replies. Ah, this town wasn't a fit place to live in. Wasn't a night you come in that door that you wouldn't have to step over a dead body? Mr. Garrity replies, is that a fact? The bartender says, all of them shooting and killing every night. There were more citizens biting the dust than there was attending Sunday services. The bartender goes on to explain to Mr. Garrity that they got a new sheriff, built a jail, built some gallows, enforced the law, and soon everybody straightened up. And then the bartender asks Mr. Garrity what he does for a living. Mr. Garrity replies, I'm on the road a good deal of the time, selling In a manner of speaking, services are my supply. The bartender says, services? Well, what sort of services? Maybe I can throw a little business your way. Mr. Garrity says, you might at that. This is a town that could use me. The bartender says, well, what sort of services are you supplying? Mr. Garrity replies, I bring back the dead. And then the opening monologue from Rod Surley. Introducing Mr. Jared Garrity, a gentleman of commerce who in the latter half of the 19th century applied his trade in the wild and woolly hinterlands of the American West. And Mr. Garrity, if one can believe him, is a resurrector of the dead, which on the face of it certainly sounds like the bull is off the nickel. But to the scoffers amongst you and you ladies and gentlemen from Missouri, don't laugh this one off entirely at least until you've seen a sample of Mr. Garrity's wares and an example of his services. The place is Happiness, Arizona. The time, about 1890, and you and I have just entered a saloon where the bar whiskey is brewed, bottled, and delivered from the twilight zone. Mr. Garrity is a trickster. He's a con man who tricks the town into believing that he can bring back the dead. He resurrects a dog that gets run over by a horse and carriage. 
But the people of Happiness, Arizona, don't know that the dog is Mr. Garrity's dog, and he has trained it to play dead. The townspeople falls for his tricks, and they want Mr. Garrity to bring back their loved ones. Later that evening, Mr. Garrity tells them that the first dead person is on his way back to the saloon. And so the people run out into the street and see a dark figure making his way to the saloon. It is then that the citizens of Happiness, Arizona realize that they don't want these people to come back from the dead. Many of them were responsible for their deaths. So they start paying Mr. Garrity even more money to make the dead return to their graves. The episode ends with Mr. Garrity by the cemetery where he reunites with his dog and his friend who was dressed up as the dead man walking down the street. Mr. Garrity gladly leaves Happiness, Arizona behind him with his wallet thicker than when he arrived. Mr. Garrity was a con man who didn't realize that he actually could resurrect the dead because as the episode ends, the people buried in the cemetery start coming out of their graves in order to seek revenge on the people who killed them. Closing monologue from Mr. Serling. Exit Mr. Garrity, a would-be charlatan, a make-believe con man, and a sad misjudger of his own talents. Respectfully submitted from an empty cemetery on a dark hillside that is one of the slopes leading to the twilight zone. What does this have to do with us today? Everything. What does this have to do with Easter, with Resurrection Sunday? Everything. It has everything to do with you and with me. It has everything to do with an empty cemetery on a dark hillside called Calvary where Jesus Christ died, a dark hillside that is one of the slopes that leads into eternity. It has everything to do with us because each of us has a date with death. We are all bound for the cemetery. So how do you deal with death? Is there hope in death? Is there hope after death? There is hope because Jesus lived and died and came back from the dead. There is hope. Mr. Garrity stole his line from Jesus when he said, I bring back the dead. That's what Easter is all about. Easter is all about Jesus saying, I Bring back the dead. And that's why our big idea today is this. God loves bringing people back from the dead. Please leave here understanding that truth. The Bible's job description of God is that he brings people back from the dead. This is what God does. This is what he loves to do, bringing people back from the dead. Raising dead people is God's business, and business is good. And that's what we'll see in his word today. So look at 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord who brings people back from the dead. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, 
Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha, the great prophet of the Lord, is on his deathbed. Death is knocking at his door. Elisha has a date with death. And Joash, the king of Israel, goes to see him. And Joash falls on the ground and weeps before him. Now, I don't know about you, but on the surface, it seems a little weird and strange and bizarre what King Joash says to Elisha. Why does he mention the chariots of Israel and its horsemen to a dying Elisha? What Joash is doing is mourning the soon-to-be passing of Elisha. He doesn't want Elisha to die. King Joash has equated Elisha with his army. Joash is weeping because in his eyes to lose Elisha, the prophet of God who speaks the word of God, that would be like losing your entire army. That would be like losing your protection. So he cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now that's strange, but even more strange than that is the fact that this is King Joash who is saying this. It's very strange that King Joash is weeping the loss of God's prophet who speaks God's word. More on how strange that is in a moment. But first, a quick word about how Christians have a tendency to turn pastors into celebrities, which is sort of what Joash is doing here with Elisha. Don't we tend to idolize the pastor or the great preacher as if the whole ministry of the church depends on one man. I love how John Calvin, the great reformer, took extra steps to make sure that his grave did not become a shrine to him after he died. Emmanuel Stickelberger said this of John Calvin's death. The death struggle began on the 2nd of May. Theodore Beza, one of his friends, wrote, From here on until the last breath, in spite of the terrible pains... His sickness was a constant prayer, and often the words from the 39th Psalm, I open not my mouth because thou didst it, could be heard from him. The emaciated body seemed almost transparent, but the spirit glowed mightily in the pale countenance of the sufferer. His gasping breath gave him unspeakable distress. His prayers and his words of consolation were more sighs than understandable words. But his eyes shone and his features revealed to everyone the directives of his life. A sure hope and a firm faith. It seemed that Calvin regained speech once more on the 27th of May, but it was the last flicker of life. Calvin had given definite instructions for his funeral. Nothing must distinguish it from that of any other citizen. His body was to be sewed into a white shroud and laid in a simple pine coffin. At the grave, there were to be neither words nor song. The wishes of the deceased were scrupulously carried out. But although in accordance with his will, all pomp was avoided, an unnumbered multitude followed the coffin to the cemetery with deep respect and silent grief. He who was averse to all ambition did not even want a tombstone. Just a few months later, when foreign students desired to visit the place where the reformer's earthly remains rest, the place could no longer be pointed out among the fresh mounds. King Joash was worried about losing Elisha, 
the prophet of God. He should have realized that instead of having and needing Elisha, he should have been looking to the God of Elisha, the one that Elisha represented as prophet. So understand this, Grace. Our help is in the name of the Lord and not the pizzazz of some great preacher. Our hope is not in a preacher, but in Jesus Christ, the one the preacher should be preaching about. Our hope is in God's word. And that's exactly where Elisha was trying to direct King Joash. Look at verses 15 through 17. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then Elisha, then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And Joash opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot. And Joash shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Elisha, on his deathbed, about to die, seeks to encourage King Joash. So he instructs Joash to take a bow and some arrows and then to draw the bow. So Joash draws the bow. And then Elisha places his hands on the king's hands and instructs Joash to open the window. Let's pause here for a moment. This is odd. This is weird. This is strange. This is bizarre. This is queer. Can you imagine going to see someone in the hospital on their deathbed and they tell you, get some bow and arrows? Maybe if you want to see the guys from Duck Dynasty, that wouldn't seem weird. But it seems weird to me that someone on their deathbed tells you to get bow and arrows and then they place their hands on your hands and they say, open the window. Does that seem weird to you? It sounds like the makings of a great episode of the Twilight Zone to me. So King Joash does as he is instructed by the prophet Elisha. And then Elisha tells Joash to shoot an arrow out the window and Joash shoots an arrow out the window. And then Elisha tells Joash that the arrow that he just shot is a picture of Israel's victory over the nation of Syria. This act of shooting the arrow is an acted out oracle to tell Joash that he will go to battle and make an end of the Syrians. So at this point, King Joash knows this much. The arrow represents the victory that Yahweh the Lord will give to Israel. This is what Joash knows at this point. The arrow represents victory. Shooting the arrow represents victory over Syria. Shooting the area means victory over our enemies, Syria. I got it, Elisha. But how does Joash respond to the word of God that came from the prophet Elisha? Look at verses 18 and 19. And Elisha said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. And then the man of God, Elisha, was angry with Joash and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. 
Elisha told Joash what the arrows meant, and so he tests him to see what he will do with this word from the Lord, with this word from God. So Joash responds by just shooting three arrows outside the window into the ground, and then he stops. It's significant that the author of 2 Kings says that Joash stopped. The narrator is telling us that Joash should have kept shooting arrows And that's exactly why Elisha gets upset. So Joash had the truth of God's word from Elisha the prophet, but he doesn't run with it. He merely shoots three arrows. And because he didn't shoot five or six arrows, Elisha tells Joash, you will not utterly wipe out Syria now. Now you will only partially destroy them. King Joash had a promise that he would destroy Syria, but he only shot a few arrows. His actions show that he didn't take the word of the Lord from the prophet Elisha very seriously. Now, what do we make of this? It's a weird story, but it's packed with a very serious truth. Let me explain. Look back at verses 10 through 13 where we get the summary of Joash's life. There are two kings. There's a king Joash over Judah and a king Joash over Israel. And the one over Israel that we're reading about is also called Jehoash. But you'll see it here in verses 10 through 13. A summary of king Joash's life. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash king of Judah, Jehoash or Joash the son of Jehoahaz began to reign over Israel in Samaria and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. And now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam, his son, sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Verses 10 through 13 give us the description of the reign of Joash. Just four verses, and Joash is off the scene of Israel's history. 16 years of Joash get condensed to just four verses, except for this one bow and arrow story. This one bow and arrow scene in Elisha's hospital room. Now, why? Why is this the only story that we get of Joash? Why does the author of 2 Kings summarize the 16-year reign of Joash in only four verses, and then he only tells us this one bow and arrow story of his life? Here's the reason. The one story from the life of Joash gets recorded because it shows us the most important moment in Joash's life. The bow and arrow story shows us how Joash responded to the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, the word of God through the prophet Elisha. So here's the lesson. How you respond to the word of God is a matter of life and death. How you and I respond to the word of God, the Bible, is the most important thing about our lives. Your job, your career, your accomplishments, all of those things don't matter when compared with how you respond to the word of God. I'm sure Joash did a lot and accomplished a lot in his 16-year reign as king. But the only story we get recorded in 2 Kings is how tragically Joash responded to the word of God. 
How you respond to the word of God is the most important thing about your life. It is a matter of life and death. And this is what God's word, the Bible tells us, is that you are born into this world a spiritually dead rebel. Because Adam sinned, you are a sinner, and I am a sinner. Because Adam, the first human being created by God, sinned, then every person born into this world is a sinner with a sin nature that rebels against God. So you are born a sinner in rebellion against a holy God. And because of that rebellion, you deserve to die, and I deserve to die, physically and spiritually, forever. But God in his great love sent his son Jesus to live the life that you could never live because you're a rebellious sinner. And God sent Jesus to die the death that you deserve and that I deserve because we are rebellious sinners. Jesus suffered for you. He took your punishment and your blame upon the cross. And Jesus did all of that for you so that you could be made right with God and reconciled with him by faith. God loves sinners who are dead in sin and desperately need spiritual transformation, who desperately need spiritual resurrection. And God raised Jesus from the dead because God loves bringing people back from the dead. God brought Jesus back from the dead. God resurrected Jesus and God wants to bring you back from the dead. Every person born into this world is born spiritually dead. I mean, you're born cute and physical and ooh and ah and you're such a cute little baby and they hold you in the hospital. But at the same time, you are spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. And you are unable to come to God That's why God sent Jesus, because God loves bringing people back from the dead. And God can bring you back from the dead spiritually so that you become born again and you enjoy fellowship with him for eternity. And if you confess your sin and your rebellion and you turn from living for yourself and by faith you believe that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, then you too can experience resurrection unto eternal life. All you got to do is say, have mercy on me, Lord, because I am a sinner. You have to respond to the gospel call. You have to respond to the word of God. And if you by faith trust in Jesus, then he makes you alive. He resurrects you spiritually. He brings you out of the grave, out of the cemetery, out of the coffin. He brings you back from the dead spiritually. And then one day he will physically resurrect you and bring you back from the dead forever. That is the hope of the gospel. That though we die, we will come back from the dead one day. But if you don't cry out to Jesus for mercy and trust in him, then God will resurrect you one day. You'll come back from the dead, but you'll spend eternity in hell forever being punished for your sin and rebellion against God. You will be resurrected one day. Every person in this room, every person who has ever lived will be resurrected one day. Every person will come back from the dead one day. But the question is, where will you spend eternity? Eternal life or eternal death? 
you can have the hope of being resurrected to eternal life if you respond to the free gift of the gospel, if you respond to the word of God. How you respond to the word of God is a matter of life and death. How you and I respond to the word of God is the most important thing about our lives. How you respond to the word of God is a matter of life and death. Will you respond today? God is calling you. God loves you. You're a part of his creation. And God loves bringing people back from the dead. Will you come out of the grave today? God loves bringing people back from the dead as we will see in the rest of our passage today. So look at verses 20 through 21. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So Elisha finally dies. He, like all human beings, had his appointment with death. And so Elisha's time was up and they buried him. So we have Elisha's funeral, and as soon as we're getting over the shock of his death, as we're reading the story, we get interrupted. Elisha's funeral service gets interrupted, and the author of 2 Kings takes us immediately to another funeral service sometime in the future. And this funeral service gets interrupted too. The second funeral service gets interrupted because one, the man doesn't even get a proper funeral. They just throw his body into the grave. Secondly, his funeral gets interrupted because he comes back from the dead. Now the author of 2 Kings gives us a little background here on why the man's friends just throw his body into the grave. The author doesn't want us to think that his friends are terrible friends and they're jerks. So he tells us here's why they just threw his body in the grave. The Moabite invaders. The Moabites, Israel's enemies who lived east of the Dead Sea, used to go on raids during the spring of the year, during spring break. So during spring break, all of these college students from Moab would cruise through Israel and raid houses and raid businesses, and they would roll through town and take whatever they wanted. So as this dead man's friends are preparing his funeral, they spot a band of these Moabite marauders on the horizon. And so fearing for their lives and fearing for their wallets, they say a quick rest in peace, brother, and they just throw his body in the grave. Now the grave back then would not have been a grave the way we think of today, being six feet under. This was a cave much like what Jesus himself was buried in. But this cave is not just any cave. The cave grave that they threw him in was where they buried Elisha, the prophet of God, who was deathly ill a few verses earlier in this chapter. This grave belongs to Elisha, the prophet of God, the one who spoke God's word to God's people. This grave belongs to Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, who represented the Lord. This grave housed Elisha's bones which would have been preserved in this cave. And so they tossed their friend inside in order to escape the Moabite marauders. And voila, as soon as his dead body touches the bones of Elisha, this guy comes back from the dead. It sounds like a great episode of The Twilight Zone. What are we to do with this story? 
Is this story prescriptive? Is God telling us that one of our loved ones die, that we can take them to the graveside of some godly preacher and they will come back to life? Is God telling us to take our dead loved ones to the graveside of famous preachers like Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Jonathan Edwards or even if we could find John Calvin's grave and then plop their body down and, and we receive them back from the dead? Is God telling us that here? No. I don't think so and I hope you don't think so. This passage is not prescriptive. It is not telling us what to do with dead people. So what are we to do with this strange, weird, odd, queer story? To answer that, think about who the original audience was. The original audience of the books 1 and 2 Kings were the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. The original audience reading the story were slaves in Babylon, exiles in Babylon. The original audience were the people that we've been learning about in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. The original audience had rebelled against the Lord and he disciplined them by sending them into exile into Babylon. So what does this cave grave story say to those exiles when they're sitting in Babylon and they read it? It tells them that there is hope. It tells them that Elisha, the prophet of God, who represented the word of God to Israel, that even though he was dead, there was still power available to Israel, even though they were in exile. The story is telling the exiled Israelites that the powerful word of God and all of the promises contained in his word were still available for Israel, even though they had turned away from God. God was telling Israel that the dead man came back to life by contact with the bones of the dead prophet because God desired thereby to show his people that the divine energy which had been active in Elisha had not by his death disappeared from Israel. God was telling his people in exile that there was hope because of the power of his word. The nation of Israel trapped in exile in Babylon must have thought, we're as good as dead because we have rebelled against the Lord. So the Lord sends them a sign of hope through his word in 2 Kings that though they may have been dead meat, his word was still powerful enough to restore them. And that same promise is available for you and me. His word, his promises are powerful enough to give us hope that though we may be as good as dead, he can restore us. What hope for those of us who have seriously made a mess of our lives. Have you messed up your life? Bad decisions, sin, consequences. What hope for those of us who have seriously made a mess of our lives? What hope for those of us who feel like we're trapped six feet under our sin? What hope for those of us who feel buried alive in the messiness and the muck and the mire of our lives? What hope for us, for those of us who feel trapped in the coffin of our consequences? This dead guy who got tossed into Elisha's grave and then came back to life should give you hope. You can have hope 
no matter how bad you've made a mess of your life. Have hope because God loves bringing people back from the dead. And God loves recording these stories in his word to encourage those of us who think we are dead and buried in our sin and the muck and the mire of our lives. He records these stories to tell us there's always hope, which is exactly what the apostle Paul said when he was overwhelmed with life and he just wanted to die. Haven't we all been there? Haven't you been there? Haven't you just reached a place in your life before you say, I just want to die. I just can't go on. The apostle Paul was there. What does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10? For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He's saying, I just wanted to die. I was so overwhelmed with life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. How does Paul describe the God that he serves? Oh, he's the God who raises the dead. It's a present tense in the Greek. Paul is saying is that God continuously raises the dead. Raising dead people is his business, and business is good. That's what Paul is saying. So that we would not rely on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope. No matter where we're at in our life, the resurrection of Jesus takes hope and rubs it into the face of death. Hope. Jesus Christ is the God who continuously raises the dead. Jesus is the God who loves bringing dead people back from the dead. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope. The fact that Jesus walked out of the grave gives us hope. And the fact that some unnamed Israelite walked out of a grave should give us hope too. Ray Dillard highlights how this odd and weird and strange and bizarre and queer story should give us hope. He says, There is no real question about what the author of the story intended, however. The man whose corpse was tossed into Elisha's tomb was not comatose, drunk, or even in a deep sleep. He was dead. Keep in mind the nature of miracle in the Bible. Miracle is redemptive. And it points forward to the restoration of all things. In this little story, we have a glimpse of what redemption will ultimately mean. Victory over death and restoration to life. It is a tiny vignette of a day when death itself will be destroyed. A glimpse of a city in which there will be no more death or mourning. Revelation 21, 4. Jesus came back from the dead. That's what this miracle, this odd Miracle episode in 2 Kings is pointing toward. It's pointing toward the fact that Jesus conquered death. It's telling us that death does not have the last word. It's telling us that death does not have dominion or power over us. This weird passage in 2 Kings should remind you of another weird passage in the Bible. What does Matthew tell us about the resurrection of Jesus in his gospel in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53? 
picking up as just as Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There were earthquakes. And the tombs also were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or who had died were raised And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That sounds like the episode of the Twilight Zone to me, or the walking dead. People coming out of their graves. The moment Jesus died, tombs were opened. Big rocks that were sitting in front of these caves slowly rolled out of the way. And these graves just sat there for three days and nothing happened. For three days, these tombs were open, but nothing happened. But then on the third day, Resurrection Sunday, after Jesus was raised from the dead, suddenly all of these people started walking out of their graves. People who were once dead came back from the dead and started walking around the city. Sounds like an episode of the Twilight Zone to me. It's a weird passage, but a true passage. What does Matthew want us to understand about this odd and weird and strange and bizarre and queer passage? He wants us to understand that Jesus conquered the grave. He wants us to understand that Jesus conquered death. He wants us to understand that because of Jesus, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear dying. We don't need to fear our date with death. Matthew wants us to understand that one of the first things that Jesus did after the resurrection was start raising people from the dead. One of the very first things that Jesus did after his resurrection was to start bringing people back from the dead. Matthew is just telling us that God loves bringing people back from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead, and what's the first thing he does? He starts bringing people back from the dead. Why? Because he loves bringing people back from the dead. So what will you do with this Jesus today? He raises dead people. What will you do with him? Don't take it lightly. He brings people back from the dead. He has defeated death. He has defeated the grave. What will you do with Jesus? My advice, my plea, my prayer is that you would cry out, have mercy on me, Lord, because I am a sinner. These stories may sound odd and weird and strange and bizarre and queer. These stories may sound like an episode of the Twilight Zone, but they are true. They are the Word of God, and they point to Jesus. They point to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who came back from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. These stories point to Jesus, who rolls into town, and when people ask him, What do you do for a living, mister? Jesus replies with a sly grin on his face. I bring back the dead. I bring back the dead. Let's pray.
Father, there are people here today who are dead in their sins and they don't know it. Would you grant them repentance and regenerate them now that they can repent and turn to Jesus? Would you bring people back from the dead right now? And for those of us who are Christians, God, may we have hope today that no matter how bad we've messed up our lives, you can bring beauty from our ashes. Do it this morning. Do what you do best for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.